the thought that came to, oh, sorry, the, uh, the thought that came to my mind for this weekend, it was a little bit of a roundabout idea. Rupert, you might think it was inspired by your, your native country, but actually it wasn't. It was, uh, as I was watching, only little bits of it, of the funeral of uh, Prince Philip. And uh, what occurred to me is during the, um, during the church ceremony, and of course there were only about a handful or change of people because of the COVID protocols, um, but that it was easy, recognizable, and acknowledged from the very beginning that Queen Elizabeth is the head of the church. Uh, kings and queens of the British Empire from the time of uh, Henry VIII have been considered the head of the Church of England. And the story and the history of that, of course, dates back to the question of divorce. Divorce isn't sanctioned by the church. It's one of the reasons why, uh, even in modern history, that there have been people who have opted out of being either king, and it's certainly in modern history, um, because they wanted to get a divorce. And that would have ruled them ineligible to be either king or queen or marrying someone who was a divorcee. So the idea of the king or the queen of the country being the head of the church is not something that is exclusive to England, by the way. It's also for the record, just in case you're interested, it's the reason why that there is a Church of England, the Anglican Church, because it was a disagreement that uh, Henry had with the Roman Catholic Church. But that's long history. Uh, it's not only true of England, by the way, it's true of most of the major European monarchies when they existed or if they still exist. The king or queen are long seen to be figureheads, head of state, but they're also considered to be the head of the church of the country. And it's not only in European history, but let's be honest with each other, we know that this has an ancient, ancient story to it. That in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, the cradle of human civilization, Kings were not seen merely as people who ruled over other people. Kings were seen as gods. And that is the reason why both in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Samaria, ancient Egypt, that you see the king or the queen not as somebody who is told by God what the law is to give to people. The king or the queen is the one who makes the laws. And why should they make the laws? Why is the king or the queen the head of the church? Because they are seen not as God's representative on the earth. They are seen as gods. By extension and comparison, I'd like to direct your attention, although we can't get there physically, our imagination certainly can bring us there. If you've had the good fortune to be in Israel the past five or six or seven years, if you haven't, once this is all over, promise yourself you'll go, that in an area of Jerusalem called Ir David, the city of David, there are extensive and remarkable and decades-long excavations going on in what is the ancient city of David. What's the ancient city of David? The ancient city of David is believed to have been the area where King David established the earliest formation of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that we see today is an expansion from King Hezekiah and other areas, but the earliest iteration began in the city of David. Today, by the way, 
it is, um, it is in the center of an Arab village called Silwan. It's in the lower, lower area there, um, along the south, southern port of, part of the old city, excuse me. And one of the things that in the excavations of the city of David, and once again, they've had some remarkable finds there, finds that explain and show to us that, that a number of the facts and stories and names that exist in the biblical record aren't fabrications, it's real history. But one of the remarkable things that you see when you excavate the city of David is something that is uncommon when you look at other palaces and excavations in the ancient world. For example, in, um, in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh's palace was always right alongside the temple in the city. In ancient Mesopotamia, Samaria, Babylon, the same exact thing. The king or the queen, the palace abutted was right next to whatever the central place of worship was. And it was the king or queen who would go in and officiate over the, the religious ceremonies. They were the head of the church. By comparison, the city of David is remarkably distant from where the temple was to be built and where it was placed. The fact of the matter is, when you look over the biblical record, you find something remarkably absent. And it's found, for example, in this morning's Torah portion. It's the reason why I thought about it. If it was in the ancient world that the king or queen was head of the church and that where they lived was right next to whatever temple was the central deity and that they were the ones who officiated all the big religious moments, look over there, that second window. That's a representation of the high priest. Is there any way, anywhere throughout the biblical record that you find any mention of a king or queen officiating at religious services? No. When you look later on in the biblical record, and for the record, there are only two biblical books that have any mention or any discussion about royalty and kings or whatever. It is the book of Samuel and the book of Kings. Both King David and King Solomon, King Saul, amongst others. Do you ever once hear of them walking into the temple and officiating over Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah or services for Pesach? The answer is no. It was the high priest who did it. Not the king. The king was subject to that. That wasn't subject to the king. The king didn't officiate on behalf of God. The king officiated under God. And that idea, both radical and transformative in the history of human society, was looking to break something that was inherent in human nature. And the question I want to discuss with you is why? Why is the biblical record of the Torah so dramatically different from the way that all other human beings operated in the ancient world? Why was it so different? I want to share with you, uh, I just finished the book actually by a student of Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize laureate, beautiful writer, Holocaust survivor. 
was the author of over 24 books, but one of his students, um, he taught at Boston University, and one of his students, uh, who was an assistant of his, wrote a book, I think it was called In the Classroom. You read a lot of books, you end up forgetting the titles of the book, so I apologize. If you want to know the name of the book, you can email me after Shabbat, I'll go through my books. I promise I'll get it to you. And he brings, first, he brings forward the question that haunted Wiesel all those years after surviving the Shoah. And don't forget, he walked the halls of many an academic institution. He said that after everything was said and done, the thing that haunted him the most was when he found out that much of the major leadership of the Nazi party, of the people who ran the camps, and their aiders and abettors, they were people who had gone to universities. They were trained doctors and lawyers. They were people who were leaders in churches, if not attending churches on a very regular basis. And Wiesel asked the question, how is it possible that people who were trained in such knowledge could be absent such ethics? Is it possible, he asks, that we could separate ethics from knowledge so much that the knowledge alone can be used to hurt people without any concern for the moral cacophony that would certainly come afterwards, how is it possible? Because we're always led to believe that the more you know, the better you become. And the answer in part is by way of a story, and I know it's not a complete answer, is by someone who also lived through that time. His name was Hans Jonas. Jonas was a philosopher, a student of the great, tragic, sad philosopher Martin Heidegger. He left Germany before the war broke out, went to England, served in the British Army. In 1945, he entered into, into Germany uh, with the British Army. And after the cessation of hostilities, he went to search out the people who he believed amongst all of the philosophers that he studied with, who amongst them, he asked the question, could he still count as a friend, someone who hadn't turned away from the knowledge and the refinement and the ethics that they said would mark their lives, but when the moment called, they failed. He went name by name, head of this department, head of that department, this person who wrote this famous book, that person who wrote this famous book, they all failed. And there was one person left. It was someone who he regarded so lowly during his academic career. But he alone withstood the Nazis. He never became a party member, and he never turned in Jewish students. So Jonas went to him, and he asked him how he did it. And the man replied to him and said, if I hadn't learned what I learned, and if I hadn't learned how to be humble, I would have never been able to do it. Why is the king forever separated in Jewish tradition from the religious process? Because maybe it is that the truth is the law of polarities. 
The law of polarity says that where there is cold, there must be heat. Where there is bitter, there must be sweet. And where there is weakness, there is strength. It is understanding that we are only as whole as our broken pieces. And humility is the groundwork of faith. It's understanding the only thing I rule over is myself. Shabbat Shalom and Mazel Tov.